0: The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. This non-commercial program is for educational purposes only.
1: You're listening to...
0: Radio. 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 Radio
1: Azeem Premji University
0: Hi, I'm Richa Govil from School of Development. I work on topics related to agricultural livelihoods, farmers collectives, women in work, and understanding social sector organizations such as NGOs, social enterprises, and others. In this series, Story of We take everyday items, something that we are very familiar with, and ask interesting questions and see where the discussion will lead us. You might remember our earlier episode on pani puri. Today, we are going to discuss the story of rice.
2: Each 1 kg of rice that we are all eating, I think we are consuming 4 to 5000 liters of water.
0: Uh, we used to consume a lot more millets than we do currently.
2: Over 90% of the recorded varieties of rice are not there anymore.
0: So, rice is something we encounter almost every single day. Uh, It's hardly a day where we would not have eaten something made from rice. Uh, We often buy rice either loose or in packets. You'll see on TV these ads by household brands, uh, which advertise different varieties of rice. This shiny, beautiful white rice served in some dish, with various kinds of accompaniments.
2: Long grains, Kamal perfectly age kiya hua. basmati rice se, no compromise.
0: How does rice get to be so white and shiny? It goes through a process called polishing. After harvesting. When farmers take their paddy to rice mills, the mills remove the outermost layer of the rice grains, the brown bran, and some of the outer layers of the grain itself. The rice mill owners then take the removed bran, extract oil from it, and sell it either as rice bran oil separately or mixed into vegetable oil. Since these removed outer layers are the most nutritious part of the rice grain, when we eat shiny white rice, we eat mostly carbs, with very little micronutrients. You know, in fact, sometimes I joke with my students that eating polished white rice is almost as bad as eating cardboard. And perhaps with cardboard, at least you get some fiber. Of course, this is just a joke. And it doesn't stop even me from eating white rice. But it is still a good reminder as to its nutritional value. So joining me on this episode of Exploration of Rice is Vee Manikandan.
2: Hello all, Rice is quite dear to me.
0: Who is a faculty member at Azim Premji University.
2: I teach courses on social interventions and social enterprises at the university. But my research interest actually lies with sustainable agriculture. I, I was telling this, Rice is quite dear to me. Like, it has some backstory. I'll just start from where I belong to. I belong to Palakkad, one of the districts in Kerala which produces more than 40% of Kerala's rice. I was in Kerala for all my summer leaves, especially, and all the other holidays, school holidays, I used to be in Kerala. That's like grandmother's home, and then my, my grandmother had these six children, and then all the grandchildren of the six children used to be in one house. We had some 16 of us. So another another image, like after this Palakkad. Childhood image of rice field. Another image I have is this from this movie called Nel. Nell in Malayalam is Paddy. And uh, this movie, like from Ramu Karyat, I don't know how many of you have heard of this particular director, one of the famous ones. And this is a 70s movie. And this movie actually had really big shots involved. Rishikesh Mukherjee was the editor. And you had Salil Chowdhury for music. <laughs> The only thing I remember is the images, you know, uh, that it captured at that particular, in the 70s. Even if you see uh, now the movie, it's so fresh. In fact, even like I was looking at some figures, and an Indian diet, 32% of our calorie intake is actually from rice. The Indian average is 32%. It's like one third of whatever we are actually taking as calories is through just rice.
0: So that's interesting. Rice is such an integral part of our culture, right? In fact, we there is evidence that rice was cultivated in India some 5,000 years ago. There's also evidence of rice production in the Indus Valley civilization. Um in fact, the English word rice itself comes from the Sanskrit word vrihi, which refers to paddy. And it, of course, it went through Persian, Greek, Italian, French, and then on to English. We used to have quite a large number of rice varieties in India.
2: Yeah, that's true, actually. I was following this particular researcher, Debal Deb, and then his study on the varieties of rice. He was trying to document the varieties that are actually present in Indian subcontinent he started his study in 1994 and then studied for over a decade so in by 2006 he was basically saying that over 90% of the recorded varieties of rice are not there anymore and it, they have just disappeared people are not growing it anymore because most of these rice varieties were actually quite suitable for local conditions because could be say some of the places could be quite uh, salinated uh, kind of a water available, you know, which is de- used for irrigation. Other places it is not. Some of the places are rain-fed. So each of these uh, terrains uh, developed their own rice varieties, and then we had over you know, one lakh and ten thousand varieties of rice that were grown in the country earlier. And then starting from nineteen seventies, uh, quite in parallel with the green revolutions onset, uh, by two thousand four, when he was basically. Um, Documenting all these things, only 6000 varieties were finally present in the country. See, for example, currently we eat a handful of varieties. If at all you will go to a shop, you look for, say, pony rice. In Tamil Nadu, pony is quite famous. If you come to Karnataka, it is Sona Masuri. Again, if you go to Palakkad, we all eat Mata rice. We call it Red Mata rice, right? So, there, this is basically the variety of color, size, All that basic and also aroma. Basmati, we all know Basmati quite well. Or the Ziraga Samba from Tamil Nadu. We ourselves, we not really know many varieties anymore.
0: So, in fact, in the central belt of India, there are, I did not know this earlier, there are several aromatic varieties of rice that was traditionally grown. So, it goes by names like Kali Bhog, Vishnu Bhog, and several others.
2: In fact, I have seen, I don't uh, remember the exact names. I have seen a black rice variety uh, in Anantapur, Andhra Pradesh, near Dharmavaram. uh, Because I used to work there in an organization. Another one is actually this uh, purple rice, sticky purple rice. I think they call it purple sticky Meghalaya rice or something.
0: So that's interesting, right? That every area depending on their agroecological zone, um, you know, the climates, the growing, the soil, the growing conditions and so on, evolved their own variety of rice, which uh, became part of their cuisine.
2: Yeah, that's true. And also even the processing of rice is actually uh, has varied, you know, differences basically. Like for example, in Tamil Nadu and Kerala, they prefer the parboiled rice. This is basically, uh, the rice is half boiled, the paddy is basically half boiled and the husk is removed. Actually, apart from these uh, traditional varieties, there are many varieties, actually, post 70s that government research institutes also developed because they wanted high yield, they wanted resilient uh, crop varieties and all. There is something called RNR. I don't know, RNR is now quite famous. It was developed in a research institute as a resilient variety. Now it has basically taken over the entire Telangana and Andhra.
0: So let's come back to how rice is produced, right? We were discussing earlier that when we think of uh, paddy field, you know, we think of these lush fields inundated with water. So How did this practice of flooding a rice field come about?
2: That's quite interesting, actually. See, rice is quite tolerant to water. So it can grow even if there is water stagnation. Farm, many of the farmers just used this particular quality of rice and f- flooding is not really required to grow rice It's it, that's not the requirement but farmers have actually opted for flooding so that it can control weeds because rice is anyway tolerating water and then you are covering the ground with water there is less aerobic activity on the ground so no other weeds will actually grow so water was actually used to control weed not to really grow rice it's interesting <laughs> yeah and that has kind of now led to rice becoming one of the more water intensive crop they actually say that for 1 kg of rice anywhere between 4 to 5000 liters of water is actually used for irrigating rice fields so each 1 kg of rice that we are all eating i think we are consuming 4 to 5000 liters of water
0: hmm so this 5000 liters then what you're saying is is not needed by the rice grain right so when i am literally eating the rice grain, I'm not eating that much water, but it's actually what went into preventing the weeds from growing.
2: Exactly. It's basically the practice. Yeah.
0: And it's it's quite sad, right? Because now, um, if we look at studies, most of uh, India has seen significant amounts of depletion of groundwater in in most parts of the country. Hardly any parts of the country, we're not measuring that. uh, We're not seeing that now. Um, In fact, uh, there was this uh, interesting recent study which looked at the relationship between groundwater extraction and, you will not believe it, a rotation of the earth itself. See, what happens with groundwater? When we extract groundwater, it comes out to the surface, then it evaporates. And, you know, either when it rains back or settles in again, it will go into the rivers, the seas, or it flows on the surface and again ends up in rivers and seas. So what we are doing, if you look at it from a perspective of the entire planet, by extracting so much groundwater, we are actually shifting the weight of the water around the Earth. And they estimated that during a period from 1993 to 2010, the Earth's rotational pole actually shifted by 78 centimetres due to the change in weight of water around the earth.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure rice cultivation also is one uh, factor in exploitation of groundwater because even in Indian average, about 85% of the groundwater which are basically extracted are used for cultivation. What? 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 About 85% of the groundwater which are basically extracted are used for cultivation not just rice cultivation, for farming activities. Only 15% is actually used otherwise.
0: But the issue is not only water, right? There are so many other inputs that these days get applied in production of rice.
2: That's true, actually. And this also came through the Green Revolution, where they started this you know, input-intensive kind of an agriculture methods, especially to grow rice and wheat, though definitely, yes, in the initial uh, phase of Green Revolution.
1: Indian agriculture has proved to be an unparalleled pattern of progress, year after year. The untiring effort of our millions of farmers and farm workers is reaping a golden harvest.
0: So it's interesting that you have several times mentioned Green Revolution, right? So if we look at what was the environment in the mid to late 60s, when really the Green Revolution policies came in, right?
1: Our Agriculture Research Institute extension network, and the far-sighted programs and plans which were implemented after independence have imparted the required momentum, direction and confidence to the farming fraternity, thus ushering in India an era of agricultural revolution.
0: What they were trying to solve for was there were a few years of consecutive years of drought, which had led to a dip in total production of cereals essentially. And therefore, the belief was, well, Okay, how do we keep up food production with the growing population of India? So as part of Green Revolution, as you know, right, different policies were introduced. um, New seed varieties were introduced. Many of these were with the intent of having shorter production cycles and higher yields, which is what you were talking about. But to get to the higher yields more inputs were required. As a
1: result, even small farmers had no difficulty in getting agricultural inputs like chemical fertilizers, certified seeds, insecticides, and better implements. To promote the production of oil, seeds, and pulses, mini kits of improved seeds, fertilizers, and pesticides were distributed.
0: Right, and that's what has brought us here today, because over a period of decades, actually, this kind of production technology got adopted pretty much across India,
2: yeah, and farmers also tend to believe these days that application of higher amounts of chemical fertilizer will get them high yield, and they hardly work on the soil itself, and because that has actually much more to it, not just putting chemical fertilizers or higher amounts of it. And it's not like they don't understand the ill effects of chemical fertilizer right. or pesticide, because I have seen farmers who would grow rice and vegetable in a separate field for house consumption without applying any of the chemical inputs.
0: So what is interesting is that these green revolution uh, production approaches, they may have increased food production, but created a new problem, the impact of which has been quite obvious for a few decades now in terms of deterioration of soil quality, depletion of groundwater, water runoff from fields resulting in excess nitrogen in nearby water bodies, and in some cases, in fact in many cases, toxic chemicals in the food that we eat and even the water that we drink. We all hear these terms, right? Organic, these days even climate resilient, agriculture, um, all kinds of things. So what would this mean? for, let's say, production of rice. So, what would be some of the sustainable practices and what would be some of the practices which are not sustainable?
2: There are certain methods people have actually tried out. One of the famous methods is uh, called SRI, System of Rice Intensification, SRI. I have heard a, a very beautiful name for SRI in Andhra. They call it Srivari. But it looks at two different things. The first issue we talked about is actually uh, flooding of paddy fields, which is not really necessary because most of the farmers do it to control weed. So, SRI goes only for protective irrigation. So, paddy fields are not really flooded at all. Whenever it is required, there is protective irrigation in SRI fields. But for weed control, they have devised other methods which are much more effective than just flooding the field. Interesting. I have seen another system Again, in Andhra Pradesh, they call it Arutadi. It's a variety of aerobic rice, where rice is grown like other plants.
0: What do you mean by that?
2: So, there is no transplantation involved in Arutadi. They directly sow, like any other crop is normally cultivated.
0: So, that's interesting, right? Because when we think about paddy fields, you know... One is the picture, the image of these lush green fields that comes to mind. And then second is usually these groups of women who are transplanting. But as consumers, we see many labels. You know, we say this is naturally produced. Some will have variants of natural in it. These days, a very common one is organic. So maybe we start from there. So is organic the same as sustainable?
2: See, organic need not be sustainable. Let's look at organic Organic is basically replacing the chemical inputs with organic inputs to grow crops That's but only one part of cultivation There are other practices Say we talked about water initially and then there needs to be a sustainable irrigation model to grow crops If you are not following sustainable irrigation but still use organic inputs and grow crops we can still call it organic but it's not sustainable on the other side when we call it sustainable agriculture, it's actually a package of practices, not just what goes into the soil or what we, you know, spray as pesticides on the crop or plant. Right? There are many other practices. See, from our own experience, when we started actually uh, introducing sustainable agriculture practices in, say, rural Anantapur, which is quite a dry place, and we ne- we could not only work with organic inputs. There are now organic fertilizer companies like chemical fertilizer companies. And we also actually bought organic fertilizer from outside and then tried organic methods, thinking that that is sustainable, but we could not really go forward with it. At some point, we had to basically stop it and then take a pause and then see what actually we are doing, right? We just replaced the chemical input with some organic input which was still coming from elsewhere. And then we had to completely relook at the entire package of practices and then from the time of you no know, seed to harvesting there are different phases of agriculture or farming which should follow sustainable practices then we started working on each and everything this also included bringing back cattle at one point of time because we started working on organic concoctions instead of bringing say organic fertilizer from companies if at all we need to make organic concoctions or organic manure in a particular village this suddenly required cattle to be present because cow dung and cow urine was so important to have as input in producing all these uh, organic concoctions. And then we look back and then see there are no cattle. People are not owning cattle. After the introduction of chemical fertilizer, they don't really need cattle anymore there. so very less number of cattle in the entire region. So starting off sustainable agriculture practices had to go one step behind and then Go to the neighbouring state because the cattle, the indigenous cow uh, variety, the cow breed in that particular region was not even present there anymore.
0: So what you're saying is that in organic, to be called organic, the main requirement is there are no chemical inputs. right? And simply doing that takes you one step towards sustainability. But to be truly sustainable, you have to look at everything from your seeds all the way to the harvest.
2: Yes, especially water. In rice's context, water is one important stuff.
0: So that's interesting, right? So that means that, you know, one can uh, produce organic rice but use water in a very unsustainable way to produce something that can be then called organic rice. Exactly. So you're making an important point. Many things get sold as organic but they're actually not sustainable. Producing Food in a truly sustainable way requires a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, changing of practices which may have been followed for 10, 20, 30 years. How do we expect, you know, pretty much this large number of farmers who are producing our food to convert to these kinds of practices?
2: See, the only way to convince farmers is to help them to make more money out right. of what they produce, right? Maybe the ecological angle and cultural angle is more valuable to us as consumers. But as farmers, for them, the economic angle is much more important. And then they need to get that premium pricing. So how do we create uh, systems that can help farmer to gain that premium pricing? One of the important systems is the certification.
0: So we see all these certifications in the market, right? So we see some things that are marketed as organic again. Some are labelled with PGS. Can you tell us a little bit about these certifications?
2: It's a mess. (laughs) We have only organic certification in the country now. And that is also really a big mess.
0: So what you're saying is we don't have a certification for sustainable production. We have a certification only for part of it, which is the organic. Yes. Okay.
2: Mainly related to the inputs. That goes into growing crops. So organic certification is about inputs. Currently, we have too many systems uh, to certify organic produce in the country. And there are different ministries involved in it. Such as? Uh, We have Ministry of Commerce uh, under whom there is a specific body called APEDA. They have a third-party verification system and then we also under ministry of agriculture they have another certification system called pgs it's called participatory guarantee system which is a self certification by farmers through by following certain methods and both function in different ways in in the third party certification system under apeda it is more of a scope certificate which means you are certifying the crop as organic okay but but under pgs in principle you are supposed to certify the farmer As organic, not the crop, which means if you certify the farmer, whatever the farmer grows becomes organic. I see. So initially many of us felt that the PGS system under Ministry of Agriculture, what has been introduced is a good system because it is actually trusting the farmer more and then certifying the farmer as organic. And then many of us actually jumped into the bandwagon and then started working for PGS certification for farmers. But over the years, you know, after a lot of back and forth between Ministry of Commerce and Ministry of Agriculture and all, slowly the character of PGS itself changed. So, PGS otherwise, which is in principle was certifying the farmer, started looking at systems to certify crops, like a third-party certification system. This has brought in actually a lot of issues to the farmer.
0: So this PGS system, how does it actually work? You're calling it a self-certification. Is it an individual farmer? Is it a group of farmers? How does it actually work in practice?
2: It's not individual certification. PGS normally works on group certification methods. So you need to form a group of farmers. And there is a lot of documentation involved and then processes involved in PGS certification as well. So at any point, if anyone wants to go back and then verify if organic practices were followed, there are enough documentation available for anyone.
0: So, it sounds to me more like a process certification in that, you know, PGS certifying that certain kinds of sustainable practices were followed in the production of whatever was produced. Is that Would that be
2: correct? It is, it is. But in scope certification under third-party uh, certification methods, they very clearly mention which particular crop and then they also even estimate the yield. And farmers, even with organic certification, either under PGS or under third party of APEDA approved agencies, they cannot still export because for export, they need to still follow a different set of certification process, which is much more costlier. And there are many other agencies working here.
0: So each country would have its own requirements for what counts as organic or sustainable.
2: Yes. So the entire European Union has a specific set of uh, standards. U.S. has its own standards. Right.
0: But all of this so far from what I have seen is largely focused still around organic production, right? Most of this. Uh, Very few of these certifications are really getting to what you were talking about earlier, which is truly sustainable production, isn't it?
2: That is true. And there is a greater need to develop certification processes or methods for sustainable agriculture practices.
0: How would one do that, right? Because as we have discussed, something that's sustainable in one context may not be truly sustainable in another context. So how would one even go about developing an umbrella sustainable production certification?
2: I think such a uh, certification system cannot be uniform across the country. Right. It needs to be state-specific certification systems. And much more work is needed to develop such a system and then to implement.
0: See, so far we have talked about rice. But often when we look for organic products in the market, what we see often is a huge variety of millets.
2: Yeah, most of us at least know the three major varieties of millet. The ragi, jowar and bajra, which is consumed across India in different forms. And when they are quite sustainable to grow, and then also the input requirement is much lesser in growing millets compared to say wheat or rice.
0: They are sturdier crops, aren't they?
2: They are. And on the other side, the nutrition value of millets is much more higher than again rice and wheat.
0: So that's an important point because uh, as a country, we made a gradual but pretty significant shift towards a greater consumption of wheat. Uh, at the time of the Green Revolution, right? So, if you look at historical data, uh, we used to consume a lot more millets than we do currently.
2: True, both actually wheat and rice, the consumption of wheat and rice has increased significantly post-Green Revolution. I actually remember some stories, the Tamil short stories written by, I think, Rajana uh, Rajanarayanan, where they actually talk about eating white rice as a luxury. Because their regular diet was millet and then once in a year for Pongal, just after the harvest festival, they are eating white rice and that's a luxury.
0: And not only are millets more nutritious than white rice, um, they are also more sustainable in terms of their production. So they are sturdier crops, Uh, they grow in rain-fed areas, require less inputs and are more resilient to different kinds of weather conditions.
2: Definitely yes.
0: Thanks, Mani, for taking us through this journey of understanding uh, sustainable agriculture. We started with rice, you know, something that we encounter every day. We talked about how the excessive use of water is leading to reduction in groundwater levels uh, everywhere. And very importantly for us as consumers, when we buy different kinds of foods, we often go by the labels, organic or whether certified through PGS or third party. And it's important for us to know that organic is one step towards sustainability, but it's not really getting us entirely to sustainable production. Thank you for listening to the story of rice. Next time you enjoy rice, think about whether you need the rice to be so shiny and white all the time. And also think about how the rice was produced. Was it flooded with water, with chemicals, or grown sustainably?
2: I hope you really enjoyed that episode on rice with Richa and money. I'm Supriya Joshi from the Art and Culture Function at the Azim Premji Foundation. There's a lot of great stuff that's happening on Radio Azeem Premji University. Don't forget to check it out. Do subscribe to our channel. Yeah, bye-bye.
1: <laughs> You're listening to...
0: You're listening to... You're listening to... play? Radio
1: Azeem Premji University. <laughs>